Good morning, brothers and sisters of HBC. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will pick up in verse 4, where we left off last week in our new series talking about spiritual gifts and all the ways in which what we just sang, the, the wonder and amazement of Christ being magnified in our lives, the, the hope of that, why our heart does cry out that for that is because not only that it's Christ in us, we've been crucified with Christ, and no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. It's also that he's sent us his spirit, and in that has given us the power and the ability and the gifts to serve him, and that's how we magnify him. And so in doing this study, we have wanted to look at spiritual gifts because we want to be um, useful. We just want the Lord to use us, and so we have uh, come to 1 Corinthians 12, and we want to get off on the right foot as uh, the topic of spiritual gifts is one that can go a lot of directions in different churches, and so thankfully we have God's Word, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12, that is so clear about it, and it's, it was clear right from the beginning when Paul said, now concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be unaware, we looked at last week, he's saying it's a good thing to know about spiritual gifts. It's not something you want to avoid. It's something you want to go towards, not run away from. And fear, uh, as if something bad's going to happen if you study what God's Word says about spiritual gifts. No, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? It's really something amazing will happen when you study spiritual gifts. We'll see what we have. We'll understand the rich treasure that we have in Christ and we've been given by the Spirit to actually be all that God has intended us to be. And so we looked last week, uh, Paul isn't wasting time circling the airport trying to uh, hold back before he actually gets into talking about the gifts, but he lays a foundation to say, look, if you're going to get off on the right foot, you've got to be informed. And so we said eh, we need to learn about spiritual gifts, and that's a good thing because you don't want to live in fear and avoid the topic of spiritual gifts because you're not informed, and you also don't want to over-inform or over-emphasize it to where you become a fanatic about it, and that's the only thing you talk about. And I had a, a young guy in the church and this past week helped me out by way of illustration because he knows I just use the same one all the time about the ditches, you know, and so this high school kid was having grace towards his pastor, and he goes, you know, it, between, you know, being fearful and talking about it versus a fanatic, and overemphasizing it, he said it's kind of like a tire on a bike, that if you don't inflate it enough, what happens? You don't go anywhere. And the bike was intended for you to go. So if you don't pump that tire up and it's flat all the time, you're not using the bike for all of its capabilities. But he said, on the other hand, if you overemphasize spiritual gifts, particularly the ones people like to argue over, it's like the tire that you overinflate. And then you're heading down the hill and it hits a rock and it explodes and you're even in a worse situation. It's when you take it and divide it accurately, as the Bible would say, and you teach on it just as it should go, that you don't underdo it and you don't overdo it. And I was saved and you were spared from me using the same old analogy of the road with the two ditches. Thanks, high school kid. So it's a good thing to know about spiritual gifts. Second, we said last week, it's, it's an even better thing to know our own errors. If you remember verse 2, remember when you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led, as in your own history can remind you of when you lived in ignorance of the truth about spiritual gifts, talking to the Corinthians, and you were impacted by the culture around you, 
you were led astray to think that you had some special spiritual powers when you were just being led by mute idols. So he says your own experiences should teach you, should humble you. You had both errors in what you believed and in the way that you were living. So it's an even better thing to know our own errors, the presuppositions we have about what the Bible says. And if we're not open to the Holy Spirit teaching us, then we will stay in our ignorance. And we also have to guard against our own errors of experience, that just because we said it, saw it, did it, doesn't make it true. Paul's whole setup of this in 1 Corinthians is there are legitimate counterfeit religious experiences, as in you can have a legitimate experience, as in you, you were there, you did see it, you did say it, and it's a counterfeit religious experience. And as was true then, so is true today. So you need to know the errors of your own experience. Third, we said in verse three, that the ultimate thing, the best thing, the main thing is that if you don't have the giver of the gifts, it's a moot point to get in a debate about what spiritual gifts are. And that's right there in verse three, if you see that. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's fundamental reality in teaching on spiritual gifts to this church is that if you don't have Christ, if he's not Lord, you're not even in the discussion about this thing. You're not even on the team to take the field. The foundational piece, the most important piece, the fundamental truth of the Christian faith that Paul is getting across here is that Christ is Lord. And if you ever depart an inch from that as the central part of your salvation, then there is no talk of spiritual giftedness in your sanctification. To confess Jesus as Lord is the first and most amazing gift the Holy Spirit gives us in our regeneration, as in he brings us from death to life. And we heard that in baptism already. When he said, oh, it was Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. By grace you've been saved through faith in Christ and it's not of your own doing. And he couldn't even confess that till the Spirit did that work in his heart to open his eyes that were blind and open his ears that were deaf and to take his heart that was stone and change him. So Paul had to go back to the basics This church had been misled by outward manifestations of counterfeit religious experiences rather than a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So kind of as we start on this journey, Paul is doing this. He's saying before we get down the path of what the right gifts are, let's not take the wrong first step. Let's not make it about everything on the outside. Let's talk about the inside. Because you know what happens when you take a wrong first step on a path, right? You end up in a place you don't want to be. This past weekend was with some buddies up in Grandfather Mountain. And um, there were a couple points in that path. It was one way up, one way back. And on the way back, when we're hungry and tired and not um, the men we once were in our 20s, we're creaking and in pain. And by the way, just a caveat on this sermon today. We did about 10 miles, and I'm not looking for any type of applause there. If you want to give it, so be it. But if I cramp up, or I make a sound like a prophetic utterance, or I speak in a tongue, it's from the pain in my hamstrings, and it's the tongue of uh, older age. It's the the 42-year-old tongue when he didn't stretch before he went out and exercised against his wife's wishes. So I'm just saying... 
Yesterday, a few times on this path, we're coming back down. We got up to the top, Callaway Peak, beautiful vista of the Watauga Valley. And coming back down was where we're getting to these points going, which way is it? Because if we go the wrong way, we're freezing to death. I don't show up here this morning. We're lost somewhere out there. That's how important one single step can be, which way you go. And that's what Paul is doing at the beginning of teaching on spiritual gifts. He's saying if you make a false step beyond the foundational piece that Jesus Christ must be Lord of your life, then you will be so lost in trying to figure out what's going on around me if you don't have a real relationship with Jesus. And you see that, and it's not privy to just one denomination today, all over the church, because the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't being faithfully preached and taught on. That you get a bunch of self-deceived, unconverted people talking about spiritual gifts, and they have no idea what's going on. And so that's why Paul's saying, let's get back, Corinthians, to the main thing. You're not even in this discussion if you don't say Jesus Christ is Lord. So that brings us now into today's discussion in verses 4 to 7 to answer the question, where are the spiritual gifts from and what are they for? And it's important to just take 4 through 7 here today because it really is the last, uh, if you want to call it, a preface to the teaching and the application of it. Verses 8 to 31, the rest of the chapter are the application. And that's usually the stuff everybody wants to jump right to. Let's start debating about the types of gifts. And Paul's saying, no, before we're going to get into that, we need to understand the source of the gifts and what they are for. And if we lay that foundation down, then let's go for it. Let's talk about all of them. Let's not be afraid. Let's not, let, let's not rush into it. But we got to see what's here today. So last week we established fundamental point. There's ignorance that needs cleared up. There's error that needs alleviated. And there is a foundational piece, Christ our cornerstone, that needs to be highlighted. And now this week we can talk about the gift of the source of the gifts and the purpose of them. So I'll read four to seven, and then we'll just break that down the rest of the way. Um, the source of the gifts, our common God, and the purpose of the gifts for our common good. First Corinthians 12, verse four. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects in the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So reads the living and active Word of God. May He bless the teaching and hearing and applying of it today. From our common God, that's the heading you could put over verses 4 to 6. When we talk about spiritual gifts, Paul wants to establish the principle that diversity can and should flow out of unity. To say it another way, unity does not demand uniformity. As in for everything to be united in the church, everyone doesn't have to be the same. Now, that's true in the church, and you even see it true in other sectors of life. Coaching my son's football team. For us to have team unity, all 22 of those 10-year-olds don't have to come up and say, I want to be the quarterback. Why? Well, they may be united. We're all quarterbacks here. We're going to be the most united team ever all doing the same thing every day, every play. And I'd say, no, that's not how we're going to win games. One guy might be the most gifted to play quarterback. 
And then all you guys who, you know, can't catch cold, let alone catch a ball, you're my lineman. And you speedy guy, you know, you're going to be out there wide receiver. And we can still be united even though there's going to be a diversity of talent out on the field. You've never heard a team say, man, we're the most united team ever. We all just do the same thing. The team would never win. And that principle of unity doesn't demand uniformity is true when talking about spiritual giftedness because of the truth we see in 4 to 6. Unity in the church actually is rooted and grounded in the unity of the Godhead, yet even the diversity of persons. That God is three in one. Do you see that there? I know on first glance, we are looking at diversity, varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. And you're even seeing the, uh, you're t- seeing the Spirit and the Lord and God and it's all variety. But yet the unity here is, this is Trinitarian. That those varieties of gifts are from the same Spirit. That the varieties of service or ministry comes from the same Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God, and then the varieties of effects or power or working comes from God the Father who works all things in all persons. So on the surface, you're seeing principled, hey, variety can come from unity. Diversity can come from unity. That's very apparent on first glance, but what Paul is doing in that is establishing and founding it on the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that's what you find when Paul teaches throughout the New Testament. To establish that God is one and yet God is Father and God is Son and God is Spirit, he doesn't have to write first Trinitarians. You know, there's no letter that has to define and explain the Trinity. Because led by the Spirit to write his epistles, it's already there. He's just describing the work that's already going on by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There's, I mean, we even heard it today in the baptism confession. That when John baptized Ben, going back to Jesus, those who would object to this idea of a, a triune God, it was in Matthew 28, Jesus there with his disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that's the tradition we carry on even to today. The, the idea of the Trinity is replete throughout the Scripture, even though you don't have to have a paragraph defining it. You just see it in action. The falsehood that the doctrine of the Trinity was created at the Council of Nicaea in 325 is a lie from the devil. Now, it was put into creed form there, but it was put into creed form to respond to the false teaching of a guy named Arius who was denying that Jesus the Son was the eternal Son of God. It was a response to false teaching. They didn't concoct or invent the doctrine of the Trinity. It's all throughout your Bible, that there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Spirit. And then you also have to define the boundaries of that. God the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. God the Son is not God the Father or the Spirit. And God the Spirit is not God the Father or God the Son. That, that's the truth that we need to affirm as part of who we are, as part of the God we worship. And it's not a second-tier doctrine. It's a foundational doctrine. And those who confess those truths hold to the historic orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And then, of course, we come up with human illustrations, which definitely have their limitations. Maybe for our kids, it's helpful to pull out an egg, you know, and say, here's the shell, here's the yolk, here's what, okay, and a three, you know, a shamrock. 
ice, water, vapor. But the main thing that we have to be able to know and we have to hold to is the truths that undergird that picture. I mean, that's the thing that we have to have in our hearts and have in our heads. And that's what Paul is teaching here. Variety of gifts, same spirit, variety of ministry, same Lord, variety of effects, same God who works all things and all persons. And then so you, you peel into each one of those, you dive into each one of those in verse four and you see, well, okay, we see diversity and unity. That so many different gifts, which you'll have to come back for the next few weeks as we get into verses eight and beyond, that actually highlight those. But what's more important here is just to say there's varieties of them. So many different gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to individuals. And we don't just get one gift, we get multiple gifts. We get them in varying degrees. But it's the same Spirit who gives them. So that, that's the first way that uh, Paul is re-instructing this church who is erring and trying to see that maybe some people had the Spirit and some people didn't because some people had, and we'll see this as the chapters go on, some people had certain gifts that they wanted to give more prominence to, the speaking gifts, teaching and preaching. And you see the arguments that Paul answers back in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4 about who they want to follow based on who the best orators are in the church, just like these Corinthians would have done out in the uh, public sphere. They would have gotten behind certain philosophers, certain speakers, and said, that guy's the best speaker. Oh, no, this guy just beat him in a debate. I'm going to get behind him. So it was that impressive outward manifestation of speaking power that then the Corinthians, in their still fleshly state, were bringing into the church. And Paul's saying, you know, when you start to be factious over this and divide over this, uh, that, that speaks against the fact that the Spirit's the one that gives all those gifts out. And you're going to now determine who has them and who doesn't have them, who has the Spirit, who doesn't have the Spirit. That's not up to you to determine. It's the Spirit who gives the gifts, verse 4. Second, there are varieties of ministries, but yet the same Lord Jesus Christ who we do those services and ministries to. I mean, that's all throughout the New Testament, no more clear than in Colossians 3. 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. The Corinthians were doing it for men. They were doing it for their own applause, their own notoriety. But then Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3, 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the word of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Well, that same principle is here in 1 Corinthians 12, 5. All kinds of ministries, and that's a word for services, in the sense that the end game of how you're serving in the church is all to the same Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And that's who we serve. But yet some of these Corinthians were getting so self-focused that it was about serving themselves and not him, not only sacrificing the usefulness of the gift given from the Spirit, but they're also standing in stark contradiction to who? The example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So what are we doing as the body of Christ? We're emulating our Savior's own example as we represent him on the earth. Then the same way he, in his body, used his mind, used his body, used everything in him what, to serve others, going all the way to give his life on the cross for our salvation. Now we, the body of Christ here on earth, are to follow in that same example serving others. Praise God, we may not need to die for someone else, even though Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no man than he would die for someone else. But we at least live in the example of that service. In fact, that's what motivates us to serve. It's the example of the Lord Jesus Christ that he left us. If you're not a Christian here today, and you don't know much about who the Lord Jesus Christ is, 
We've already talked about that he is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. He was not created by God the Father. He eternally coexisted with God the Father. And that could all be very out there and maybe hard for you to understand today if you're new to Christianity and don't know your Bible, but you also need to know something of the humanity of Jesus. That this is a God who came down to serve, which is unlike any other God there is. That this is a God who would come to give his life as a ransom for others. And if you're not in Christ today, know this about him, that the chief work he came to earth to do was to die for sinners. He says, I came to die for sinners, not the righteous. Well, the reason he didn't come to die for the righteous is because there are no righteous. No, not one. So guess what? We're all in the same boat. I'm the sinner, you're the sinner, we're all the sinners. The difference is who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. So if you're sitting in here today, whatever view you might have of yourself, you may have a really high view of yourself and your own righteousness. And let me say this to you. You can never be so righteous that you have no need for Christ to save you. You can never be so righteous that you don't have the need for Christ to save you because only he was perfect as his heavenly father was perfect. That's why you need the perfect righteousness of Christ. Yet on the other hand, maybe you have a really low view of yourself and you think there's no way that God would love me. There's no way that Christ would save me. It's, it's the opposite of the first thing I said, that you may in your self-righteousness think you have no need for Christ. Maybe in your sinfulness, whether you have seen it on display and the effects of it in your life or whether you just know it's deep down in your heart that Christ would never want to save you. Maybe you might even believe that he needs to save you. But you may have bought in the lie that he wouldn't want to save you, that you're too far gone. And just as much as it's a, it's a lie to believe in your own self-righteousness that you don't need him, it's just as much of a damned lie to think that you're too far gone that he would never want to save you. Friend, the good news of the gospel is both the self-righteous legalist and the most worldly, wicked man made at the cross. Both need Christ. You may have some of both in you today. You have moments where you think you don't need him and you have moments where you think he doesn't want you. In the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as he says, you both need me, and I've given my life for you, and I want you. I was willing to die for you. So what will you do with Christ today? Will you receive him as Savior and Lord? He who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he accomplished the righteousness you couldn't. And he extends his arm in forgiveness today. Will you accept him? Will you receive him? Will you cry out for him today? Be merciful to me, the sinner. And he could give you eternal life. But you have to see your need. And you also have to see his love and his willingness and his desire to save sinners. When that happens, we're changed. We're, we're able to say Christ is Lord, filled by the Spirit, given his gifts, able to serve Christ. And then verse 6 the varieties of effects, that's a word for works or energizing. It's the same God who's working all things and all persons. As Ben gave testimony today from Ephesians 2.10, he created us for good works. 
And how about this? He supplies the strength for those works. I mean, both in the same way that he gave you life, like it or not, he created you. You wouldn't be on this earth apart from the will and work of God. And he recreates you in Christ and he gives you new life. And because of that, the effect of your life, though there's varieties of it, and that's probably the most interesting one to think on. I think we can grasp the first two that, yeah, there's varieties of gifted people and there's varieties of ways we serve the Lord, but there's varieties of effects of our life, the work that goes on in our lives. And this also has to cut through our pride because we could take the idea of effect or work or ability or effort and want to take the credit for it if we think it's all about us and not about God. Or we can lament that we look around and maybe don't see the same effect in our lives and around us as other people do. And even that source comes from who? Comes from God. I mean, it's easy, especially in ministry, to compare ministries. And why isn't my preaching as powerful as the next guy? Why don't I see as many converts? Why aren't the churches growing as much? And the truth is, I have to come back to a verse like verse 6 and say there's varieties of effects. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Be faithful what you have, Adam. Let God control the fruitfulness because it's a variety of effects, what we see happening around this, the work, the effort, the energy. But it's the same God who works all things and all persons. So you put all three of these things together today. The bottom line is the source of our salvation and the source of our serving is a work of our triune God. And Paul is saying, before we get into the nitty-gritty details of our spiritual gifts and what they look like and how we use them, you got to know it's from our common God. It's from Him, the Holy Spirit. It's through Him, God who works all things. And it's to Him, the services that we give to Jesus Christ. And if we don't imbibe that with, with everything in our heads and hearts, we will get off on the wrong path. Because we then will want to take credit where credit's not due. And that's the beginning of division in a church. It's about me. It's about what I do. And it's not, we forget that. Where do you find yourself contributing to? Variety of his gifts, same Holy Spirit. Variety of ministries, same Lord. Variety of effects, same God who's working all things in all persons. This truth matters because when we get that all things are from him and to him and through him, that foundational truth of his work in us sets the table for an implication that has a thousand applications. If you get this, then go out and serve however you want to serve. Use your gifts however you want to use them unto the Lord for his glory. But I don't need to sit here and come up with a different application for every one of you. I can't improve upon the application that the Spirit can give you. When you're sitting here saying, whoa, the triune God gifts me, gives me a purpose for the gift, gives me the power to carry it out. I got all that in me. The idea should start flowing. What can't you do? What greater source of power? What greater purpose? What greater gift could you have? So then what's really holding you back? Well, what might be holding you back is verse 7. We'll move to that now. When we lose sight that the purpose of our spiritual gifts are for the common good. Sometimes that's the one thing that holds us back. 
We can get fired up and excited about all the gifts like the Corinthians did and be impressed by a display of external manifestations of them. And then verse seven stares us right in the face and says, each one, every true Christian in the church is given the appearance, the manifestation, that's what the word means, as in when my gifts are used for God's glory and I show up to serve other people, that's the great serving evidence of the Spirit's work in my life. I, I qualify saying serving evidence because also there's evidence of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all Christ-exalting things that can show up. What he's saying here in verse 7, and we got to catch this, is we are given the manifestation of the Spirit. The, his, his evidence of his presence actively in my life and in your life is the fruit of his working in us. He shows up through us when we serve Ourselves, no. When we serve the common good of others, of life in the body of Christ. So that's an amazing reality, and um, it should inform us that we are not just here standing around waiting for some manifestation of the Holy Spirit to magically overtake me in some invisible way that no one else could see except me, myself, and I. Paul says, no, here's the cool thing. The manifestation of the work of the Spirit in your life is a very shoe-leather faith reality. It walks. And if nothing's walking, nothing's working, is his point. Are you with me? If you're not... Serving other people with the gifts you have. The manifestation of the Spirit given for the common good. You've lost sight of the purpose. And maybe it's because you've been thinking it's all about you. And it's just, you know, my private, I got these gifts, but I use them in private, or I, you know, it's just about me. And um, that's the thing that's going to get in the way of them. They were meant to be used for the good of other people in the church and also in the, in the world. So this wakes us and shakes us to the bad habit we can develop of self-centered Christian living. And I, I think about how times in my life, you know, it's not so much for me um, maybe an individual experience of that. It's kind of just when I look back at seasons of my life and I just see where, you know, I just kind of had a mentality to go at it alone, that I, I was like above the body of Christ, outside of it, or on the fringe of it, and not in the center of it. You know, the, you know it's like the, um, I used to say this example of it, there's no Rambo Christians, but Rambo's kind of on his way out. Um, I mean, literally, he's, he's old. And if you're not into 80s, fine, cinematic masterpieces like Rambo, then Rambo Christianity doesn't make sense. So I'll put it in 2023, as much as for you, uh, Gen Xers and of, there's no Rambo Christians. Uh, all y'all, millennials and Gen Zers, there's no Mando Christians. Mandalorian, same guy, vigilante, stays on his own, does his own thing. You know, just, I mean, I know he has the Grogu guy with him, but, you know, he's trying to protect him all the time. But he just kind of wants to do his own thing and go his own way and be his own guy. And there's, there's no such thing in the Christian life. Uh, for you, you know, higher pop culture creatures. There's no Bilbo Christians. You know, Bilbo Baggins, he just kind of wants to stay away, like put the sign up, says, privacy please. 
He's bugged when other people want to come into his home and get into his life. He reluctantly goes on an adventure, but at any chance he gets, he kind of has this like spirit of independence, rugged individualism. Maybe because the, you know, in, in Mando or Rambo Christianity, it's you have a height, heightened view of your own usefulness and giftedness and I could do it all on my own, but over here, maybe you're more of the contemplative and just people just bring you down, slow you down. Look, if you identify with any of those, not like moving out of like irreality, like it's not reality to reality, but if you just have a bent towards being an isolated Christian, an independent Christian, and on your own Christian, verse seven is just looking at you going, that's not the way it works. It's just not the way it works. I mean, you could try to hem and haw about it. You could write me an email about it, come talk to me about it, and I'm just going to say, how else does verse 7 work than you being part of the body of Christ? God's given you gifts and the abilities and the purposes to use for the other's common good. Now, it may be that, you know, we all can get discouraged from time to time of the effort it takes to give of ourselves for others. Maybe it's that thing that it's just... Christianity, life in the body of Christ, can be hard work. Amen? People are messy. Our lives can get screwed up. You just not, you get yourself involved in someone else's life that needs you, it probably won't resolve itself overnight. Rare cases it does. They probably won't immediately receive what you want to tell them. It takes effort. Just like it took Christ's effort to live his life to accomplish his Father's will. Right down to the last night of Christ's life where he's saying, not my will be done, but yours. If there's any way, can you remove this? Like those aren't throwaway words. Christ had an experience of the effort, what it was going to take to go all the way to the cross. And he didn't give up. He didn't back down. So remind yourself of Mark 10.45 if you have a reluctance to involve yourself in the body of Christ because of the effort required. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, did not come to be served but to serve and give his life for others. So effort might be the thing, or um, our egos get in the way. Ben mentioned it in his testimony. He stole the verse I was going to use. Proverbs 18, verse 1. The, The guy that secludes himself, isolates himself, what does he do? He seeks his own desires and quarrels against all sound wisdom. Sometimes we just don't want to be in the body of Christ because We open ourselves up to being corrected, to being rebuked, to being instructed, to being told we're wrong, to our ego taking a hit. And it's much easier to live a isolated Christian life in my own sphere of perceived perfection. It can be pretty attractive, can it? Maybe there was never a triggering event in recent church history quite like the pandemic to not just make isolated Christianity possible, but comfortable and now preferable. Right? It got comfortable when we shut it down. And uh, we had to. You know, there was whatever the order was. And so we had to, you know, we adapted. We went live stream. We didn't do that before. And, you know, suddenly people were getting used to, I can do this online. It's not how it was designed. I mean, it it can be comfortable that way. What's more comfortable than Sunday morning in your jammies and some waffles? Come on now. But that's not the way the Christian life, verse 7, is designed to be lived. 
And the work of the Spirit most appears and manifests it and, and is most powerful when we're living life in the body around each other. Yes, it's effort. Yes, we get our egos crushed. Yes, it's, it's all that. But that's exactly the way God designed it to be. That sanctifies us and it helps other people in the process. So maybe some of you need to backwash some of that out of your system. We weren't saved and set apart to live it alone. And maybe some person's going to listen to this right now. They're at home and, or later this week. And the Word of God makes it very clear. It's time to shut that down. It's time to get back. And in getting back, don't miss the point. It's, the point isn't just to show up. I'm not asking for church attendance. We're looking for what? Involvement. Life in the body. Serving. I mean... Maybe it's, you know, isolation isn't you, but there can be the temptation to just show up, sit up, listen up, look up, and that's it. Close it down, come back next week. Well, that's not what verse 7 is saying we're to have all this for. We're to have it all and use it all for the manifestation of the Spirit to represent itself in the common good. So, it's pretty simple it's hard, but it's simple, isn't it? Life groups, this week, not writing any pulpit curriculum. Your discussion is verse 7. It's the one question you're going to ask each other this week. I mean, you could talk about whatever else you want to talk about. Go down the rabbit trail of the Trinity, go for it. But the only question that I would put on the piece of paper for you to answer this week in life group, how are you applying verse 7? What's it look like in your life? Where's it at? Where does it need to get better? Where is it doing well? Now, sometimes you need some sub-questions or diagnostics to kind of get at the heart of verse 7. So look back at verse 4. Maybe here's a sub-question to ask. If you're trying to answer the question, hey, how is the work of the Spirit, the appearance of the Spirit for the common good showing up in my life? Go back to verse 4. First, I have to ask the question, am I using my gifts? Which may ask, lead you to ask the question, what are my gifts? You might not know. It's understandable. Just come back for the next five weeks. We'll teach on gifts. We'll, the, we're not going to be able to cover every single possible one there is out there. I could go to every passage in the New Testament, put them together, and that, that still could leave it open. That may, Hey, Paul was given a, a variety of ones to talk about, but there could be other ones. But we will talk about the ones that are here in chapter 12. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a good starting point for learning what are spiritual gifts. Maybe you just need informed on it. Um, maybe you don't see any, you're not using any spiritual gifts right now because you have to ask the question, why? I mean, I don't even know if I'm in Christ. Good, that's where Paul would want you to. I'm not saying it's not good you're not in Christ. I'm saying maybe going back to verse 3 and really understanding your salvation. Because if you're not seeing any of the gifts of the Spirit in your life, you're not, there's nothing happening in you or around you, you should question that. Is Christ Lord of my life? Maybe there's a lack of spiritual gifts and working in your life because of indwelling sin, unconfessed sin. Now would be a good time to deal with that. There's a connection David makes in Psalm 51 that I noticed this week. You know, I think we, we go to Psalm 51 as a great psalm, a passage and we say, hey, what's it look like to truly be repentant before God? And it's, you won't improve upon Psalm 51. 
Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Watch me, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51 nails it when it comes to what does it look like to be broken over our sin and confess it before God. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. But here's the thing sometimes I miss. It's the back end from verses 10 through 19 that's actually about once we have dealt with unconfessed sin in our life, unrepentant sin in our life, he turns it to praise. He turns it to service. He turns it to others. Have you noticed that? That when you get, when you work through that sin in your life that you've been not one to deal with and you've been trying to hide, listen to what he writes starting in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Why? Because he's, he's got something to say now. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? When you actually deal with the sin in your life, biblically, humbly, you say, I got, I got some ministry to do to other people. I'm not just going to sit around now and not say anything. I've got people I can minister to. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. I mean, he's saying there's now some ministry to get after. So I just lovingly want to say, if you've, got, if you've got sin you've been hiding in your life that you're just trying to deal with on your own, don't you see how that also can be connected to that isolationism and that Galatians 6 bear each other's burdens. If you're not letting people in your life, they're not bearing your burdens with you, you're staying stuck in your sin. I'm talking to Christians. And we need the body of Christ around us when we are stuck in our sin. To be there to point us back to Christ, point us to the cross, point us to the gospel, point us away from ourselves. And then to say, let's get back into it. What are we waiting for? So, First one, if you're trying to apply verse 7, you go back and, hey, am I using my spiritual gifts? And if I'm not, why? Second one, look at verse 5. These are all applicational questions. Am I serving anywhere? Anyone? And if so, are there any effects of it? Am I serving? If you're sitting here waiting for me to get into the rest of this chapter, and then you'll try to figure out what to do, I would say, hey, in the meantime, just start serving. Just, just do it. You may not know what gifts you have. The best biblical way to figure out your gifts besides being taught what they actually are, as in what the gifts are, is to just do it. I'll pay Nike its royalties later. Just do it. If you are a Christian and you're like, I just got to figure out my gifts first. No, just start serving somewhere in the church around you. Look for a need and meet it. And if you're terrible at trying to meet that need, if for some reason it's like, no, 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 no. Well, then now you know you can cross that one off the list. But sincerely, some people sit around and contemplate their spiritual navel of what's my giftedness when there's all these needs around us to meet and you'll figure it out as you go. Shouldn't be complex. You shouldn't need a spiritual gift test online. I mean, this is just Adam talking my opinion, you don't need it. Why? Because you have gifts. So just go use them and figure out what they are while you use them. And because when you do those things, I mean, I come out of 
I've, you know, in college, I was a Christian college, take your spiritual gift online, take your personality test online, take the spouse you should marry online. And here's the problem with those. We see what we want to be, so we click. Personality test, anagram, whatever. Figure out what you are. Well, if I get the choice between, how do you generally think of yourself? Um, Dirt or gold? I don't know. I can't remember what these things are. You know, are you an eagle or are you um, a crayfish? I'm going to probably pick an eagle. We just, we're going to pick what we want to be. And then we turn around and go, oh, cool. It says I'm Napoleon. (laughs) You know, I should be in charge of kingdoms and conquests. And if I get, you know, you're Charlie Brown. I got to take it over again. There's probably some malfunction. Change all my answers. When it comes to just serving, just do it. Just start doing it. And you figure it out as you go. And then the teaching on this in the next few weeks will catch up to it. Last one. Varieties of works, same God. Now we're talking about the effects. As you're serving, you have to answer this question. Is it life-giving to me and life-impacting to others? That's the application of verse 6. Varieties of effects. We know it's the same God who's given us the power, the energy, the ability. He's the source. So ask yourself the question, is it life-giving to me and life-impacting to others? And that's the sweet spot of the bat. I'm not saying you'll hit a home run every time, but you'll get on base. Life-giving to me, what's that mean? Do I come alive doing it? Like the right way. I mean, there's a lot of things that are life-giving to me, like taking a nap today. I mean, it literally gives me some life. But I'm talking about the work for the Lord. You do it, and it drains you, but it fills you. You have that kind of service you've ever done where it drains you, but fills you? And you're going, man, I'm pouring myself out for this, and it's, it is effort, and it's tiring, but I've, you lay down at night, and you talk to your spouse, or you, you see your buddy the next morning, and you go, but I've never felt more alive because I'm actually getting my hands dirty, and I feel like it's, it's life-impacting. It's almost like you see that energy that's in you that the Spirit gives you and God gives you and you're doing it for Christ's glory. And it's almost like your abilities and energies you see transferred into that person, the people around you are impacted. That's the package deal. Because it's all working together. The gift and the Spirit that gave it, the purpose for what you're doing it, Christ's glory, the power that you have from God, it's life-giving to you. No matter the difficulty of it. And then others are being built up around you. It's impacting them. And trust me, you want both of those there. Because we can get into ministries that can have one but not the other. If it's life-giving to you, but life-impacting not so much to other people around you, hopefully somebody's helping you see that. Or you just look around and you're like, where'd everybody go? I mean, if I come in here, empty room next week, I guess I can cross preaching off my list. I mean, I always say, you know, grass withers, flower fades. If I see a bunch of you dying like flowers out there, wilting, maybe I have to start questioning, am I in the right lane? Honestly. I mean, that's the check of the preacher, teacher, and that gifting. Uh, If you think you have the gift of encouragement and people are walking away just discouraged, (laughs) you know, it doesn't help when you say, brother, be encouraged. No, I just say, how about just saying an encouraging thing and let that do the trick? I had a friend like that, brother, I want you to be encouraged. And then he would just tear me down. And eventually I said, if you actually just say something encouraging, I'll be encouraged. You prefacing it with be encouraged 
doesn't change the fact that you're a very discouraging friend. <laughs> Maybe he's in the wrong lane. But you've got to be doing the stuff to figure it out. And that's going to be the fun of this series. We get to do it together. But you're not going to figure it out if A, you're not serving, if B, you're not serving for the common good. I mean, you got, it's got to show up and affect people around you for you actually get a read on it. Right? It's just, that's why it goes against later on, Paul will talk about this, the, I, my private gifts, you know, me, myself, and I. What? That's just for you. But it's doing nobody else any good. When we talk about a personal relationship with the Lord, that's one of the greatest and worst cliches in all church history. Personal relationship with Jesus. It's the greatest because it, it really is. You don't have a relationship with a Bible or a religion or a building. You have a relationship with the risen Lord. So it is a good statement. But what goes bad with it is when we turn that into like the ethos for our entire Christian ethic. Me, myself, and Jesus, and we don't what? We don't serve others. It's my personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, but verse 7 says you, you have him and you have the spirit for the common good. So I think I've belabored that point. We'll close up shop. Look, I, I see this series as being one that, back to the analogy at the beginning, can go one of two ways. I mean, it could just be another thing we, we learn. We say, oh, cool, we finally taught on the spiritual gifts. Now we can, you know, chalk that one up to our spiritual IQ. But the test of whether this series was worth it is going to be in what? It's going to be in the fruit of it. It's going to be in your individual life, using the gifts you've been given. It's going to show up in the people around you. It's going to show up in the church as we gather and as we go. And it's going to even show up in our town. And by God's grace, it'll show up end of the earth. If we're taking it and applying it, if we're asking the Lord to work through it. And I pray you would be doing that with me this whole time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its wisdom. It's from you, and it's to you, and it's through you. So we just stand back, and we're amazed by it. We thank you that something that in Corinth and throughout church history has divided, and it has torn down, and it has wasted talent and gift and ability can, and used rightly and understood rightly can bring you more glory and honor and praise and that's why we want to do it Father Christ we thank you that it all starts with you that the one gospel that saved us is the one that we stand in and the one that we serve in and Spirit we thank you that any, anything happening in here today is you activating that which we are learning so that we can change so we praise you, Father and Son and Spirit. And we ask you to lead us out of here to be useful for you in your glory today, Christ. Amen.